The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making sense of work in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and what veteran remote worker, aka retired astronaut, Scott Kelly does to build mental resilience. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. I know I always do. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. My guest today is Charles Duhigg. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a best-selling author. He also hosts a Slate podcast called How To with Charles Duhigg. And you should check out all of his work. But here's what you need to know for today. Charles went to Harvard Business School. Not so long ago, he attended his 15th reunion, and he wrote about it for The New York Times. You know, HBS is supposed to be a golden ticket. You get in, and you've got a straight shot to the kind of career that turns you into a happy mogul. Wealthy, influential, a queen of capitalism. So Charlie figured his peers would be pleased with their lives, right? He found something else. Many, many people had achieved kind of the the top-level goals that they had wanted to achieve, but a lot of them were kind of miserable. You heard that right. They were unhappy. Not because things hadn't worked out for them, but because things had worked out exactly as they had planned. And it led Charlie to wonder, and me too, what leads to a fulfilling career? And I'll just acknowledge the privilege that goes into getting to have an economically lucrative job, even if you hate it. It's a lot. But there's a lot to learn from Charlie's classmates. In many cases, they prioritized money over meaning. In fact, they planned for money to provide the meaning, but it didn't work out that way. They learned a lot. Here's our conversation. What were you going for when you chose to go to HBS? What did you go in wanting to do? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) I mean, to be honest with you, I basically just didn't know what to do with my life. Like, <laughs> I was I was either going to go to 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 law school or to um to business school, and I I got into Harvard Business School, and I didn't get into Harvard Law School, so I went to business school. And frankly, thank God because like I would have taken on so much more debt if I'd gone to law school. But I, that's the thing is that I think that most people who go to business school. They don't go because they're like, oh, there's this one thing I need to learn. And I think actually this is true of a lot of professional master's programs. I think it's true of law school is that you get a lot of people who like come out and they they know that this credential will help them. And it's sort of like buying this insurance policy for the future, right? Like like there's only so far I can fall having a, a, a Harvard business degree in my pocket or there's only so far I can fall if I have a law degree. And of course, that's not true. You can like fall all the way down. I know many of people who have. If you think that business school is is will afford you the opportunity not 
to have to worry about job stability. Journalism school basically is designed to afford you the opportunity to worry about job stability for your entire career. (laughs) And at some point, I was very worried about that early on. And a mentor said to me, uh, there are three types of capital you will need to worry about in your life, and you will worry about them in the wrong order. Uh, First, you have social capital. It's where you were born. It's how you know what to do. It is the guarantee that you will have a sofa to sleep on at the end of the day. You need to continue to take care of that. You will think about that least. Then there's educational capital. It's done. It's complete. By the time you get to be an adult, you can build on it. But, you know, if you've got a college degree, that's your educational capital. Then there's economic capital. And if you've got the first two tied up, you don't really have to worry as much as you think you do about the third. But you will spend your entire life worrying a lot about the third, worrying about how much money you're making, where it's coming from, what you can do with it. I think that's exactly right. When people ask me, like young people, when they ask me, like, how should I decide what to do next? The first piece of advice I give them is just assume for a second you are going to actually be as successful as you want to be, but also assume it's going to take twice as long as you want it to. And the reason why I think that's that's helpful is because it's actually true, right? Like pretty much like if you put your mind to something and you give it enough years, anyone can do anything. But it's going to take a long time, longer than you wish it would take to reach that goal. And what it does is it forces you to ask yourself the question, will I enjoy those years between right now and reaching the goal enough to continue doing it? Because the biggest issue that stands in the way of most people is not their talent. It's their their persistence. Like, do, do they actually like the process enough to stick with it? And that's the other thing I found with a number of my, my business school classmates is that the ones who were unhappy tended to take jobs that they did not like thinking about outside of their hours on the job. Right. They 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 were doing the job for other reasons, either because it was stable or it was high profile or it gave them a lot of money. And so when they were done at the end of the day at five o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever, they would stop thinking about the job. And that put them at a huge disadvantage to other people who loved that activity so much that they just wanted to think about it all the time. And those people, those people tended to to succeed much faster just because they were literally working twice as hard because they would go home and they would fall asleep and they were thinking about that deal as they were falling asleep the same way that when you and I fall asleep, we're thinking about some story or how to solve some problem in a, in the structure of an article. And so I think that if you just assume you're going to be successful, but assume it's going to take a long time to get that to, to get that success, it forces you to ask yourself some questions like, do I actually like doing this activity or am I doing it just because I want the end result? Do you think you need to like doing your job, though? I mean, I, when I think about being successful in my career, I think about the end goal I want to achieve. I think it might be a little much for me to expect that I'm going to enjoy the process. Yeah, I actually do. I don't, but, but I'm going to define your job in a different way. So I think that there's lots of people I've met who are accountants at big companies like IBM and they're not enthusiastic about technology and they're not enthusiastic about accounting, but they, they love interacting with smart people and helping them. And that is their job. Their job is to help smart people solve problems. And so I think part of it is like, there's the job that's written down on a piece of paper, your job description. And then there's the job that you actually do. And you have to know which part of that job you enjoy and find meaning from. 
if for no other reason than you just don't know what else to lean into. You know, I want to go back to the this idea that you put forth too, that your your HBS classmates would sometimes spend all day at a job that they really had no connection to. They'd want to leave that job and not think about it anymore. And that this might have been one of the reasons they were unhappy. I think there's got to be another piece of it. Because I know I have a lot of friends who have jobs that they do and don't think about when they leave. But it's because they have enough of a life outside their work that they find purpose and meaning in other places. And their work just enables that. And one of the things that happens for the people who really aim to go into these like high-powered white-collar professions, investment banking, consulting, is that their job is the only thing they have time for in their lives. And that makes them a slave to making money above all else. So one of the guys that I wrote about in that article in the Times Magazine was a friend of mine who I saw at the our 15th reunion. And he's making about um, $2 million a year. And he's just totally miserable. Like, he's just like so unhappy. And And like one of the things is I was talking to him, I was like, well, you know, maybe you should like get a hobby or like, you know, find, you know, do volunteer work. And he was like, dude, if they're paying you $2 million a year, you do not have time for a hobby, right? Like, like the fact that this job is boring and dumb does not mean it doesn't take 18 to 19 hours a day. Like, in fact, that's what part of what makes it boring and dumb is that it takes 18 to 19 hours a day. And that's the only reason they give me $2 million for it is because I spend so much time doing that. How important is money? I mean, $2 million, I listen to that as a journalist and I think, holy crow. <laughs> what, what do we know? Do we know anything about once your, once your basic needs are met, how important money is? Yeah. So he walked me through it. Like they basically live like paycheck to paycheck. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, this is a guy who who's in finance and, and he's like, look, I could move someplace cheaper, right? Like we could bring down a lot of those costs. But I can't really do finance anywhere besides New York City. And like I could send my kids to public school instead of private school. But like why am I working so much if not to send them to private school? Like that's the whole point of working so much. I don't poo-poo money because like I like having money. I like making money. I mean like – and like staying up at night and worrying about money is terrible. It's awful. Like I hated that feeling. And now that I don't have to worry about it, it's fantastic. But I think to your point, and I think you're exactly right, is money can't be the only thing you're thinking about because it's never as big as you hope it's going to be. No matter how much you get, there's someone else who basically just worked the same year you did and they got more. And and if money is your only criteria, you're going to feel poor by comparison. Well, it's an interesting moment to have this conversation because as you go through, for example, the set of assumptions that keeps your buddy living in New York City, sending his kids to private school and working where he works, they're all up for renegotiation right now. Um, I wouldn't ask you to look into a crystal ball and tell me what you are certain the future holds, but do you think that a lot of your HBS uh, colleagues are, are right now rethinking a lot of that stuff? So I do have some classmates and friends who have made big changes, but before the pandemic. And oftentimes I found that those big changes came in response to some type of adversity. There's one guy I know who 
like had this terrible accident. He was actually riding a bike and he got hit by a car and, and just months and months of recovery. And from that, he basically realized like, I don't like the work that I'm doing. I want to go start my own thing. And then I have a couple of friends who got fired and they came out of that saying like, why was I working all the time? Like for this job that like just cast me aside whenever I, whenever it needed to, I'm going to start building the life that I want. And so, and I think that this is true in general. Like, I think that like when, when I look at people who came out of HBS and did well, the ones who did best were the ones who had some hardship. They, they oftentimes did not get the job they wanted out of business school. And so as a result, they had to go build a career for themselves. And so I think that they're that there are some people for whom this pandemic right now is creating this hardship that makes them really say like, like what, what makes this worth it? What makes life worth it? Like what choices do I have to make in order to do the things that I want to do? But then there's a lot of other people for whom, frankly, this pandemic, while a huge inconvenience, it's, it won't really be a life-changing hardship for them, right? Like a lot of people who like, they were in New York and they're relocating to Jackson Hole and, you know, it's <laughs> it's it, and their their bonus is definitely going to be smaller this year. But it's not like it really like shakes them deeply. I think that like this, you know, there is a particularly in the American psyche and particularly among among the types of people who go to Harvard Business School or other business schools. There is this romance and infatuation with success like being successful is is a goal and an end in and of itself. And I think that that's a little bit of a mistake because I think that if you're successful all the time, you miss out on learning a lot of things that hardship and failure and deep disappointment sometimes seem to be the only tutors to teach us. And the truth of the matter is that when you're successful all the time, your opportunity cost for doing something crazy is just too high. Like yeah. we're lucky if we have failures early because it lowers the bar for us experimenting and learning things. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid. And he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
Well, so one of the most interesting things about your reflection on your peers at Harvard was when you mentioned that the people that you saw who were doing the best now were actually those people who didn't get that big job at McKinsey that got looked over. When I get together and I gossip with like all of my business school friends, like at some point the conversation always comes around to like, who's doing really, really well. So like when we talk about like who has been successful and, and who we thought would be more successful, it's really, really interesting because the A plus students, the students who were like did really, really well, who everyone assumed were going to be a success, they're all doing fine. But they're not superstars. They're not like knocking it out of the park. It's the it's the B to B plus students who are the ones who like are just killing it. And the reason they're killing it is because they took some risk early on that paid off. And the A plus students, with some exceptions, there's a couple of people who are A plus students who ended up taking risks and they are actually, frankly, the ones who liked business school the least or saw the least value in it. But most of the A plus students, they like went to Goldman or they went into private equity. And the truth of the matter is, if you're my age, 45 years old, and you graduated in 2003 from Harvard Business School and you went to Goldman or into private equity, you're never going to become mind boggling rich. That opportunity, that window has passed us by. The people who become mind-bogglingly rich in 2003 were the people who did something that nobody else thought was a sure bet, like starting starting an internet company. I was going to say, that was, those are the people that started internet companies. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Facebook was starting at about the same time that I was at Harvard. And, right. and, and if you had gone to my classmates and you had said, like, do you want to go do this thing called social media? All of them would say – there's no track record there. Why on earth would I take a risk to do that? If anything, they would say, I'm going to go to Google, right? Google has a track record. Well, I guess like one, one lesson you take from that is that there's no way really to cheat risk entirely and become mind-bogglingly successful. I think that's exactly right. And I think, in fact, it's I would even take it another step further and say, All of us are too risk averse. I mean, we know this about investors, right? We know that like the average investor does not take on enough risk. But I think it's also true about careers, about life, like particularly for successful, smart people. You know, you get into a good college, you graduate from college, you've got your choice of law schools or or consulting firms to go work for. The opportunity costs of doing something crazy just seem so high. So you just stick with that path and you say like someday – Someday I'm going to do something crazy and I'm going to try and make my stake. And for some people, they find that that path is actually great. They love it. They get, they're really rewarded by the work. But the people who don't have those opportunities, they're the ones who went and start started like Nike or Apple or, or Facebook. Well, uh, but I'm going to say something here, Charlie, which is something that you would say to me if I said this. Um, you can say that. I can say that. We're white we have ivy league degrees like the, what risk means for somebody with those two criteria is so different than what it means for almost anybody else setting themselves up for their career can we really tell people that they're not taking enough risk so let's talk about life stages so if you have kids and there's other people who depend on you or if your family depends on you which for many many americans in their 20s is still true right like their parents depend on them or they have siblings that they're raising then then there's there there's certain there's fewer latitudes in how many risks they can take. But the data is still pretty conclusive like about this that when you are young, 
and your choices don't have as many consequences, you tend to be disproportionately rewarded for taking risks. That does not mean you should, for instance, assume if you're, you know, five foot 10, that you can definitely become a pro basketball player. It also does not mean that you can't work hard. It also doesn't mean that you can't listen to life when it's giving you feedback. So if you try, if you say, I want to become an internet entrepreneur and you go and you start a company and nothing's working, then you got to listen to that and say like, I took a risk. It might've been the wrong risk. Maybe I'm better at like marketing and I should listen to that. But I think when you're young and, and you don't have very many, very many dependents who are relying on you. I actually think you can take a large number of risks as long as you are are committed to working hard, committed to taking the time and to listening to the feedback that you get. I mean, now this is a very American perspective. I would say if you're, you know, growing up in other countries, that might not be true. But I don't think it's limited to like white middle class or upper class people. Well, how did you personally get to your next step post Harvard Business School? The thing I was trying to figure out was to decide whether to go into journalism or go into politics. And I I decided that if I went into politics, I thought I would be successful, but I thought it would take, you know, twice as long as I expected it to. So okay. I decided to become a journalist and I got a job. Um, I got an internship at the Washington Post. Now, historically, the Washington Post hires all of its interns. And they did not hire me. They, they like very definitively were like, we do not think you are Washington Post material. You are not ready to work here. And a lot of it was because I hadn't like learned basically how to talk like a journalist, like that, that val- like teaching people how to signal values. I did. I had learned business school values and how to signal business school values. And it was out of place in a newsroom. And so I didn't get hired. I mean, I, I literally like... <laughs> At that point, I was like the lowest earning member of my class. I signed up for an internship at the Washington Post with, you know, earning basically nothing. I was living in my in-laws basement and then I didn't even get hired. Like they were like, nope, we don't want you to stick around. So I had like this dose of like failure. And um, and then I my wife was going to go to grad school in California. And so I applied for every single journalism job I could in California. And I got hired by the L.A. Times to write for their outdoors section. And let me just say, like, there is there is not less of an outdoorsman on this planet than me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hate camping. I just like I do not like being an outdoors. But like they they were like, look, we you have to do this tryout. You have to go write this article. Go to Yo- go to Yosemite and. And write this article. And so I went to Yosemite and I brought back an article and they were like, nah, that's not what we were looking for. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write another one. And so I went back up to Yosemite all on my own dime and like spent like two or two and a half weeks writing a whole nother article. And they were like, okay, I guess we'll hire you. And then I was on the outdoor section and then I went to the business section and then eventually to the New York Times. And now I'm at the New Yorker and, and I've written a couple books, but like, I like, I think becoming a journalist Basically, I was making a risky bet, but it just seemed so much more interesting. I just knew that, like, I knew I could spend the rest of my life being curious about how to tell a story in the most compelling way. And I didn't think I could spend the rest of my life, like, shaking voters' hands or doing real estate deals and still be fascinated by it. So where did Harvard Business School help you in your career? Oh, it's helped me a ton. First of all, it, like... One of the really interesting parts about it was that, like, I got to spend two years listening to other people speak who are, you know, Ayn Randian capitalists and are Republicans 
or just are uninterested in things that like most like liberals like like spend a lot of time thinking about. And most importantly, I could hear them talk about it in a way that where they weren't defensive. And so that was like hugely valuable still like, you know, I think among our journalism peers, I don't think that our journalism peers know many Trump voters like like they might know Trump voters. They might be related to one, but I don't think they're close friends with Trump voters who can explain why they support Trump without feeling defensive about it. And I have probably like 15 or 20 classmates who like completely enthusiastically support Trump and can explain to me why they support Trump and why they don't care about the things I care about. And that's been hugely valuable. But the other thing is that like business, like everything else, is basically a vocabulary. It's a it's a way of thinking, but it's also a set of of phrases that are like suitcases for certain ideas. And if I had gone to medical school, I would be able to like talk to doctors or read epidemiology reports and understand not only what they're saying, but what they really mean by it. But instead I went to business school. And now when I talk to business people, I really deeply understand what they are saying to me. But I also can't be intimidated by anything that they say because I know at the at the core that they have the same basic knowledge set that I do. And that a lot of that knowledge set isn't like magical, like talent. It's just understanding what a discounted cash flow is or, you know, a Black Scholes model. So I actually use my business school education all the time. As we wrap up, I guess I would just put the question to you. If you had advice to young people at the beginning of the career journey, um, maybe they're thinking about going to business school themselves, what would your advice be? Number one, know why you're going to business school. Business school is a wonderful way to transition from one career to another career, particularly if you want to transition into finance or something like that. Business school gives you a huge opportunity to make that transition that it's hard to do otherwise. Or it can just be like two really nice years to like figure out what you want to actually do with your life because it's not very hard and you don't have to work very hard and you meet a lot of really interesting people. But then I would say once you do go to business school and I would encourage you to do it if you're if you're thinking about it and you can afford it is that number 2 I would say figure out what kind of job you want to get that gives you genuine meaning. There's been a bunch of research about what gives work meaning. But part of it is I wrote this article about Google building the perfect team that was in the New York Times Magazine. And it was an excerpt from, from this book, Smarter, Faster, Better, that yeah. I wrote. And, and there's these five things that Google says you need for the perfect team. And they're things like you need to know that like your work has impact. And you need to know that there's structure and clarity, like you know what your job is, or dependability that you can depend on other people, that there's psychological safety. And those things that make a team a strong team, and you can find them online. If you just Google um, Project Aristotle, the chart will come up. Um, but those are also the same things that determine whether your job is meaningful, right? Like if you believe that you're having impact on other people's lives, if you, if you believe that there's people who depend on you and you can depend on them, those are things that bring meaning to work. And in fact, there's this famous experiment that was done where these researchers went into two hospitals and they looked at the janitorial staff of the two hospitals. And in one hospital, the janitorial staff basically like all hated their jobs and they did terrible, terrible jobs. And in the other hospital, the janitorial staff like would volunteer extra hours to go and clean in patients' rooms. And they asked these 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 janitors like, why, why do you love your work so much? And they were like, oh, we're not janitors. We're, we take care of patients. Like when I go and I clean someone's room, I'm taking care of that patient. And I know I'm taking care of that patient 
because the doctors and the patient's families, they tell me how much it matters for me to come in and freshen up this space. And so janitors would do things like there was this one woman who worked in a unit um, where people were in comas and she would change the art on their walls every week on her own time. Like she wasn't getting paid for this (laughs) because she felt like it helped people in comas to have their environment change a little bit. And, and she's someone who said, like, I am taking these patients who are in comas. I am helping to revive them. The work you're doing, it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what matters just as much is the story you tell yourself about the impact and the meaningfulness of that work. And oftentimes people who work in finance or have jobs they hate, the work itself can be kind of interesting, but they can't tell themselves a story about why it matters. Find a job where you can tell yourself a story and that story fascinates you and ennobles you and makes you feel like you're doing something important with your life. And you're never not going to like your job. That is stellar advice. That was Charles Duhigg. His podcast, How To with Charles Duhigg, is available from Slate, wherever you listen to podcasts. Recently, I actually joined a show to help a guy in his late 30s named Donnie think about a career change. I really hope that Donnie finds a job that fills his life with meaning. And you should really check out the show. It's summer somehow. Our economy is showing more signs of life. Some cities are slowly starting to reopen. Join me this week to talk about it over on Hello Monday Office Hours. Producer Sarah Storm and I get together every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern and go live from my LinkedIn profile. It's our coffee break, literally. A chance to visit with listeners and talk about the episode. Is it too much to expect our careers to be meaningful right now? Come tell us about where you find meaning and whether it's at work or not. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, and Juliette Ferro help us make this podcast more meaningful. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. Hey, Charles, I love this setup. Walk me through where you are right now. So I'm actually in my um, – so we we have a, an apartment underneath our house that we have ended up using as like a gym and a studio. So like I'm in this like oversized closet. And what I did is I just um, – I put a desk in here and then I basically just hung um, blankets over it so that it's a little bit like sound deadening. That's amazing. Sarah, don't ask me to do that here. Because <laughs> mother-in-law will get annoyed. <laughs>